The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And may the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. O Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. Let it be the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very good, Tom. Thank you very much. Good. It's good to see you. Father, I'd like to get into the email inbox tonight. It's been a while since we've answered any emails. So I'll start with one here from a viewer who says, Father, if you could write an open letter to the clergy and lay people of the Society of St. Pius X, what would you say in order to save them from the doom that awaits them and their leader's goal to reconnect with Rome? I believe such an answer may be necessary to these good people in order to open their eyes to the truth. I pray that it is not too late to save the society from its death. Thoughts there, Father? Well, I couldn't do better than encourage them to uh, return to the the words of their founder, uh, Monsieur Lefebvre. And Monsieur Lefebvre uh, uh, spoke very, very, very clearly uh, about the fact that they could not reunite with, or could not unite with anyone who did not recognize the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, certainly, Archbishop Lefebvre saw that it was impossible to join Catholicism with modernism. Uh, they should also recall the experience of Monsignor Lefebvre, um, who um, was working out an arrangement with the Vatican under John Paul II, and then uh, even went so far as to sign a protocol and uh, to discover probably what he knew deep down, but he was trying to set an example of, you know, acting in good faith to show that the Vatican modernists are not acting in good faith. So he found that they betrayed their own, their own agreement, their own protocol, and Archbishop Lefebvre then proceeded to consecrate bishops. And, uh, you know, was uh, rewarded with a withering vast withering blast from the Vatican, uh, claiming that he's excommunicated and, and so on. So the Archbishop, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre's words and example uh, make it very clear to us that it is impossible to negotiate with modernists. It is impossible for us to uh, unite with modernists because modernism is... Uh, is essentially anti-Catholicism. It's a denial of what we believe, even in the process of using the same language, they deny the reality. They even change the very definition of the word faith. 
And so we have nothing in common with them, except a vocabulary that doesn't mean the same thing. Okay, they've got their own dictionary. And so we should not be deceived uh, to hear them use uh, Catholic words. Uh, we will always find that they, they use them in an uncatholic way. So uh, and I would drive home the same point that um, Monsieur Lefebvre did not create the fraternal uh, priestly society of the Society of St. Pius X in order to make it a, an, an organ um, of the Novus Ordo Church, to make it a foil for the modernists to pursue their agenda of, of ecumenism. Um, but that, unfortunately, I believe what is what the uh, leadership of the Society of St. Pius X now is doing. And uh, I fear that they are leading them down the so-called primrose path to, uh, to oblivion, really, to eventually uh, simply be absorbed into the, 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 the great morass, out the, into the swamp of modernism. Okay. All right, then next email, Father Concerns Our Lady of La Salette. Uh, so this viewer says he watched a WCB video where you spoke of the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary at La Salette. And one of the uh, apparent prophecies mentioned was that Rome would lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. However, this viewer says that he has found much information disputing this claim. Um, there are those who say that this was actually a quote from Martin Luther in 1540, and that the message of the visionary was actually not an accurate uh, translation of what the Blessed Mother actually said at La Salette. So what are your thoughts on that, Father? Well, that statement evidently um, was applied later. I, I, I may say it, I mean, the apparitions at La Salette to Melody and Maxima uh, came, and I understand that that <laughs> statement, Rome would lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist, came along sometime after the apparitions, okay? And uh, was rather disputed as to whether it was authentic, whether it was a of melody, or if it didn't actually come from melody, whether it actually was part of the apparitions or not. So it was something of her imagination or whatever. Um, I would say uh, there's also an issue involved here that uh, involves the temple in Jerusalem because there, there is prophecy to the effect that the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, will also uh, uh, turn that into a, this, the seat of the Antichrist, okay? Who will rule from the newly rebuilt temple of Jerusalem. So prophecies to that effect would not seem to harmonize with this idea, not only of Rome losing the faith, but of uh, it becoming the seat of the Antichrist. So whether it's Rome or Jerusalem, I mean, one can contest the issue. The fact is there will be an Antichrist, and he will make his, uh, the seat of his power somewhere, uh, certainly uh, as the Antichrist. Uh, the prophecy of Rome losing the faith, there are indications to that effect. I mean, uh, St. John Bosco's memoirs tell us um, that he exhausted himself at an advanced age and in illness to raise the funds necessarily necessary to build the Basilica of the Sacred Heart in Rome. 
Okay, it's just uh, north of the Stazione Terrini, the main train station there. Very, very beautiful church. St. John Bosco was in residence there also. And there's a enormous, magnificent, gilded statue of the Sacred Heart above that rises above the train station and everything secular in the area. We always make it a point to visit there whenever we take the students there. But in any case, uh, it was there, by the way, that St. John Bosco received the vision of the future, which caused him during Mass to stop and weep, openly weep, because he saw what was in store. But he said later on to, I think it might have been Caligari, I don't know whether it was, it was one of his boys who went on to become a priest, maybe a bishop, uh, who asked him why he would take upon himself the commission from Leo XIII to raise the funds to build the basilica. And uh, he is quoted in his memoirs as saying, do you know why I accepted that? He said, because the day will come, he says, when the right Pope comes along is how it is translated. I haven't seen the original Italian. Uh, that missionaries will go out from this church to preach the gospel in Rome, as though that will be extraordinary, extraordinary, that the gospel will be preached in Rome. So I couldn't think of a more, uh, well, one could easily infer from that the very idea that this is, uh, you know, coming from the mouth of St. John Bosco, that he sees the future, he weeps, and he says that missionaries will have to now go to Rome to preach the gospel. That's very significant, yes. I believe. Yes. So it's, there are two prophecies here. One is, uh, you know, whether Rome will lose the faith and whether it will become the seat of the Antichrist. As I say, the question of Jerusalem or Rome being the seat of the Antichrist is, is another question. But uh, the fact of Rome or the Romans losing the faith, I think, uh, there's substantial evidence in prophecy to indicate. I mean, even our Lord, our Lord himself asked the rhetorical question of his apostles, when the Son of Man returns to judge, do you think he will find faith on earth? The implication, of course, little or none, because perhaps the only faith will be underground, like in, as in the catacombs of old. You know. mm -hmm. So, uh, but the faith will endure, maybe just not on the face of the earth, right? so to speak. Okay. Uh, then actually, my father, why does Father Jenkins and many Catholic priests only wear Roman chasubles and not Gothic ones? Are Gothic chasubles a modernist innovation? Uh, well, it's not a, a fashion statement by any means, right? Um, it is, um, well, the Roman rite seems to harmonize very well with the Roman vestments, obviously, to begin with. But also, the Gothic vestments lend themselves very, very easily to Novus Ordo. And we see uh, early on in the Novus Ordo, the New Order preference for Gothic vestments and a rejection of the Roman vestment. Okay, There's something about this, the cut of the vestment, the style of the vestment, that just breathes the Roman rite, the traditional Roman rite of Mass, which is the so-called Tridentine rite. Okay. Uh, it wasn't invented by the Council of Trent. It is not really the Tridentine Rite of Mass. It is the Roman Rite of Mass. Okay, going back centuries and centuries, uh, we even find the canon in the Gelasian Sacramentary, the Leonine Sacramentary before that. So uh, this is going back to the earliest, you know, 
fourth, fifth centuries of the church. So uh, the time we have records of the liturgy as it is being offered the actual prayers of the mass. So um, we, we just find that the Roman style of vestment um, coincides beautifully with the Roman rite of mass that we're offering. Uh, the Gothic vestments um, breathe more of the Gallican rites, um, and um, the Gallican rites, unfortunately, uh, uh, have a certain history behind them, a certain era of anti—well, the, the ultramontanism, <laughs> uh, a rejection of the authority of Rome, and. This is why we are traditional, because we recognize the authority of the true papacy. We recognize the authority of St. Peter as the successor of our Lord, as the, as the vicar of Christ, not the successor of our Lord. Our Lord has no successor, obviously. Even the Holy Ghost is not his successor as such, right? Um, uh, in, the, in the sense that the Holy Ghost teaches new doctrine and supersedes what Christ taught. The Holy Ghost doesn't do that. The Holy Ghost, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, was explicitly promised and then sent by our Lord to confirm us in the faith that Jesus Christ himself has taught us, to keep us, um, to keep us in line with and, and, and uh, to keep us faithful to the teachings of Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost himself does not come to teach us a new religion or a new faith, contrary to Francis's uh, understanding, okay? Um... Uh, this is not Francis's spirit of surprises that we're talking about. We're talking about the third person of the bus turning the Holy Ghost. The Francis's spirit of surprises comes from some other place, but it doesn't come from heaven. So um, we we firmly believe in the authority of the supreme pontiffs, the vicars of Christ throughout history, but we believe that they themselves are subject to sacred tradition, which is the work of the Holy Ghost. And that is why we see in times of confusion, the answer is to be found in fidelity to sacred tradition. When the Pope wavers, or when there is an anti-Pope, whatever, we know we can find the faith in sacred tradition. We know that for a fact. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> so um, um, our wearing of the Roman vestment is, is a statement of fidelity also to the papacy itself. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it would be heretical to wear a Gothic-style vestment, but there is a certain historical association with the Gothic-style vestment of, uh, like, uh, res resistance to the authority of the Holy See, but also um, it lends itself very, very easily to the Novus Ordo, and, um, you know, you'll, you'll find the... Traditional Gothic vestments coming back from the Middle Ages, um, that that cut, that cut of vestment lends itself to Snoopy. We've seen Gothic style vestments with Snoopy on the front, rainbows, all kinds. They're like billboards, you know. The 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 clergyman there at the table spreads his arms like that, and he, he's got like an almost not an Edith Joe's. But whatever, you know, the current uh, fad is he's got on, on his vestment. You can't do that with the, God, with the Roman style vestment. You know, it is what it is. And uh, what it is is an expression of the, of the faith of Rome throughout all these centuries. So we remain, 
very much attached, uh, not attached in a bad sense, but attached to the faith, obviously, and we see the Roman-style vestment as very appropriate to, to maintain for that reason. Okay. I got another good question, Father, in the same email. What are your thoughts on Catholic architecture, and what an ideal Catholic church should look like? Well, the church has already mapped that out for us, you know. And what is that? Uh, well, do you want me to, uh, to describe it? it would, <laughs> describe you know, I, I'm not brief to begin with, but if you... <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I mean, to, to go through the, you know, talk about the narthex and all the rest, I'm not really ready to do that. I think that's something we could probably show in diagrams, you know, okay. be much more uh, clear and a lot quicker just to show people pictures. Uh, some missiles, actually, Sunday missiles and daily missiles actually have the pictures and uh, actually name the different parts of the church. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say, in particular, the distinction between the sanctuary and the nave, uh, nave from navis, ship, okay, refers to the, 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 the ark of Noah in which life was saved from the flood, of God, uh, God's punishment for sin, uh, the bark of Peter, right? So the idea of the ship where the people sit in the pews is uh, very apt and used in the uh, naming of the, the part of the church where the people sit. But then there is the sanctuary where our Lord himself is reserved in the Blessed Sacrament. And there is a clear delineation by the communion rail between the two and um, one of the first things the Nova Sordo did, the New Order, was to tear down that rail, right? It's like uh, almost as though they, they could style themselves to be uh, someone you know, saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Um, they wanted to, uh, but in this case, uh, they, they were, the, the progressives were the ones wanting to tear down the wall, right? Um, they don't like walls. They don't like distinctions, they say, right? Um, so they, the first thing they did was tear down that community rail. And they did that to uh, stop the kneeling for communion, right? Uh, all part of stopping receiving on the tongue. Now you put it in the hand. It all follows almost necessarily. You know? But they wanted to tear down the distinction between the laity and the clergy. Because the clergy sat in the sanctuary. The laity sat in the pews, okay? And um, <clears throat> they wanted to tear down the, the, the distinction between the laity and the servers. The servers, even the young children who serve, uh, represented in the, what was in the early church reserved to the deacons and then the subdeacons, right? The serving of the mass. And uh, the objective was to try to um, work their way toward a Lutheran concept of the ministry. So the priest is no longer acting in the person of Christ and is no longer there as another Christ consecrating the host and the chalice. The priest is there as a representative of the people and leading their worship. And you find that in so many ways in the new mass, that, that whole expression of the people being represented by the priest, not the priest there in the person of Christ uh, turning the priest toward the people and making the people the reference point. Uh, even, even as the priest says what they call the narrative of institution, the words of our Lord at the Last Supper, as they are now given in the Novus Ordo, are very significant. 
as the priest, the clergyman, says, for this is my body, right? Holds up usually like a big chalk taco shell type of thing. And then puts it down and then genuflects. What's missing? Ask a Nova Soto clergyman. Ask a Nova Soto layman. Ask a Nova Soto clergyman. What's missing there? Won't be able to tell you. Ask a traditional Catholic who might witness this. Most of them would not be able to tell you. At the traditional Mass, when the priest consecrates the host, is the first thing he does elevate it and hold it up for the people to see? What's the first thing he does when he consecrates? He genuflects. He makes an act of adoration to the host because he has consecrated the host, speaking in the person of Christ, the words of Christ at the Last Supper. He has consecrated the host, the body of our Lord. Before he elevates that host for everyone to see, he adores. Not so the Nova Soto. When the Nova Soto clergyman at the table, when he speaks those words, right? Remember, uh, they were presented as a narrative, a storytelling, okay? The first thing he does is hold the host up for all the people. Because in the Lutheran concept, um, there's impanation. Christ moves into the bread and sort of fills the bread. But the bread remains bread. It's just that Christ coexists with the bread. But only by the faith of the people. The faith of the assembly is what consecrates. doesn't transubstantiate, of course, in the Catholic sense at all. But it is the faith of the people that actually moves Christ to coexist with the bread. And that's why only after he holds the host up for the assembly to make that act of faith does he put it down, and then he genuflects it, then he adores it. But it's not the work of the, of the priest who consecrates. That's very significant. Very tiny change, one of thousands. But it speaks volumes about their whole concept of the Eucharist, the Holy Mass. It speaks volumes. It's extremely significant. Um, if, if a man were to walk into church wearing a hat and refused to remove it, how would traditional Catholics view that? Would they, would they take that as being a kind of insult and a statement against the faith and against the real presence? Uh, something as insignificant as that. You know? Yeah, in, in former days, in traditional days, that would be considered to be um, implicitly heretical, like an implicit denial of the real presence. There's a man here who refuses to show that reverence to the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Well, if that, if that would be significant in traditional days to the traditional church, uh, then the omission of that, of that genuflection after the clergyman says those words of Christ until the entire congregation has all focused and made that act of faith and thus brought Christ into that piece of bread, uh, that is a thousand times more significant and someone walking around the church with a hat on. Um, uh, would the people would just see it for what it really is, the Novus Ordo. You know? Sure. Wow. So, um, 
how did we get into that? Again, <clears throat> the purpose of breaking down that distinction between the people's place in the church and the clergy's place in the police of the church was an attempt to destroy the distinction between the laity and the clergy and ultimately work their way up. Look, they destroyed the distinction between the laity and the clergy and the diaconate. They had the lay diaconate, right? The next step is the priest. Mm -hmm. And they're just maneuvering to get to the point where they will do that too. Right. Keep the beat, keep the drum beat going for that. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's coming. Uh, we even have some videos of what Catholics believe about the, the intention of the modernists to destroy the priesthood, even the very concept of the priesthood of the Catholic Church. And they're well on their way to do that. Uh -huh. All right. Uh, well, Father, we're jumping all over the place here, but uh, if you could bear with me, what are your thoughts on playing violent video games? Are they a harmless pastime or are they immoral? Uh, Tony, you should give it up, please. Give it up. Give <laughs> okay. It up. Uh, the uh, violent video games uh, do damage. They, well, first of all, uh, you know, attuning the mind to to violence mm -hmm. uh, is not good. Obviously, you know, you dull, you get these things into the imagination, the scenes of brutality and cruelty and bloodshed and gore and all that, and it dulls the the natural horror at this. Desensitizes. Desensitizes a person to that, exactly. And you put this in the hands of children, and what, what's going, what do you expect that will happen in the course of time? Um, they are going to not react as you would want them to, to things that should horrify them, should horrify them, right? And they will have a growing acceptance of uh, violence and viciousness, and in a sense, uh, Everything becomes kind of virtual reality for them. You know, you you blow your adversary to a bits in a shower of blood, then you press new game, and there are no consequences, right? So this is extremely mind-numbing and conscience-numbing to children. Uh, you know, you look at the, the poor children who grew up in, in war zones. You don't have to go back to World War II or World War I. Look at uh, what's going on in the Middle East and all of the carnage going on over there continually. And uh, children growing up, I mean, there, there were f photographs in newspapers of children playing in the streets with cadavers, even bodies, uh, maimed, uh, uh, dead, right, but actually disfigured and so on. The children are jumping over their bodies to play ball. And this is their new normal, unfortunately. And they become, this has become commonplace to them. They've accepted this. And uh, they're breeding a generation of people who are, uh, of children who will grow into adults for whom this is, uh, unfortunately, commonplace, normal, even desirable. They have a certain blood thirstiness in them mm -hmm. uh, for this. So, uh, you know, we're, uh, well, our Lord said, if you scandalize a little one, and it is somewhat innocent, uh, it would be better for you if you had not done that, but rather had been drowned in the depths of the sea, rather than have lived to do that. <laughs> and uh, to scandalize the children is a, is a horrible crime. Our Lord reserves a very special punishment for those who give such scandal. And I'm afraid these violent video games are, are a big part of that. But, Father, even beyond the... And, and by the way, Tom, yeah. if I may say this too, yeah. 
If parents find their children are playing video games and avidly playing video games hours a day and losing interest in real life, like there's totally lackadaisical about anything real, don't be surprised. I mean, what's real seems boring. You know, what can get their adrenaline going but the violence of the video game of kill or be killed and seeing, you know, horrific scenes of, uh, of carnage. Um, you know, people, especially boys, really go in for that, uh, for the adrenaline flowing here. And no wonder they just check out of life. We've seen that in children, you know. So if parents are witnessing that happening in their children, that they're disinterested in anything real in life, they should, they'd better check and see what kind of games not only their kids are playing right in front of them in their living rooms, but what kind of games they're playing under the covers at three o'clock in the morning with their friends on somebody's, you know, cell phone or DS or whatever it is they, they use. They better check on that. They, some of the parents would be really, really shocked at what they found. Father, even beyond the, uh, the violence aspect, I've, I've always thought that uh, virtual reality in and of itself can be dangerous. Um, surely there, there are some good good uses for it, but uh, if, if you think about it, the whole basis for uh, Catholicism, for anything really, is that there's one reality. You know, God is truth. There's, there's just this one reality, and if you uh, experiment with, with stepping outside of this reality with, with these virtual realities, then that just um, kind of throws a monkey wrench into everything. Well, a couple of generations of college and university students in America have been raised in virtual reality. It's called existentialism. Right. This is what they've learned. They've learned that reality is what you make it. Everybody has his own ex experience. Everyone has his own experience, and that is his own reality. And everybody determines what is real for him, what is true and false for himself, what is right and wrong for himself. And it, your reality is your reality. My reality is my reality. <clears throat> and you may say abortion is murder, and I say... That's your, that's your business. Don't invade my world. I don't see it that way. Abortion is my answer to all my problems, right? And uh, so I find it perfectly fine. My life is more important than that child's life. So the child has to go. That's in my world. That's how it is. You keep your morality out of my world. And uh, this is existentialism for you, you know. <clears throat> and uh, so the, the born in, those born and bred in this existentialist mentality, they're taught basically that they are the gods of their own individual world, of their own creation around themselves, of which they are the center, and everything is right or wrong, good or bad, insofar as it affects them well or not. Insofar as it pleases them, it's true, it's good. Insofar as it offends them, it's false and it's bad, okay? And so they become like little gods unto themselves, and uh, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the consequences of this right now. So this, this virtual reality uh, through the digital world here is, is actually simply another big step in that direction of somebody kind of disappearing into his own little world and living his own little world um, in which it's all about him or her. <laughs> uh, so it's a rejection of the creator, as you say, a rejection of his creation. Okay. Well, then, Father, let's uh, change gears a little bit again. got a question here from a viewer who asks, what is Catholic teaching in regard to the acceptance of donated organs and body parts? 
I know Catholics are limited in what we can donate, but are there limits as to what we can receive from others? Well, it's a rather more limits to what we can do. Um, you see, if we're complicit in something gravely sinful, we partake of the guilt of that grave sinfulness, that gravely sinful act. And if someone, let's say, wants a, a heart in transplant, which he knows must be uh, gotten from someone by killing that other person, by keeping him alive, and then harvesting his heart while he's alive, which is what happens. I mean, they can talk about brain, brain death all they want, but more and more people in the medical field are crying foul and, say, foul and saying that this category of brain death was invented, right? Was invented in order to give um, the, let's say, doctors a pass to mine organs from living human beings. Uh, they need fresh organs. They can't be dead. Yeah, so uh, they had to be taken from someone who is not dead. And um, they will keep them alive. Uh, uh, as I say, notwithstanding, uh, brain death notwithstanding, they will keep them alive to obtain the organs. And anybody who knows this and realizes that um, I and going to be given a heart at the expense of someone else's life, it's going to be taken for someone else who is alive, partakes in that. I mean, so, you know, the, the communist Chinese are, are well known for executing political, uh, political figures, political enemies, right? enemies of the state, enemies of the party, really, the communist party, with a bullet to the back of the head. And then the, the body is put into the ambulance, kept alive on life support until I can tear out the organs, cut out the organs for transport. So uh, if you were to pay somebody for $40,000, let's say, if you were to pay somebody $40,000 for a fresh heart for yourself or a loved one, um, knowing that this is how it would be obtained, would that be, would that be murder? Would you be paying somebody $40,000 to kill somebody to get you a heart? Essentially, yes. Okay. Well, so you're not paying $40,000 necessarily, but somebody is. Let's say the insurance company is going to pay or somebody's going to pay the money to get this done, right? But you're the beneficiary of it and you receive the heart. But you are the essential element to getting an insurance company to pay for it, right? That somebody has to, it has to be taken from somebody, but it has to be given to somebody for people to get paid for this. Why is this any different than a contract killing? So um, one one might argue, well, okay, but they can somebody can donate half a liver and not not die from it, you know, and they can make that work for someone who needs that to survive. That's a that's a different that's an actually different argument. Okay, it's a mutilation of the body. It's not a killing of the person. And um, but the idea that you actually have to kill someone to take a heart or something essential to live. Uh, something without which they cannot survive. Uh, that's murder. And um, you cannot kill one person in order to save another. Directly kill, take the life of another innocent person for the sake of uh, rescuing another. That's the premise of abortion. 
the child has to go so that I can live the life I want. Okay. All right, well, Father, let's jump to this. Uh, you have an ongoing discussion with a, uh, with a certain state of contest website, and uh, they, um, they have a response to one of your quotes from our most recent program where you said, uh, quote, the result of a logical process does not yield a dogma, end quote. And this website says that is true, but it does yield a necessary truth. And since people have an obligation to accept both premises, they must also accept the conclusion. There is no possible alternative. Okay, and this, uh, this is exactly my point. I mean, this writer keeps coming back and making my point. Okay, it is necessary, if it is necessary to accept the premises, it is necessary to express the premises logically, and it is logically necessary to accept the conclusion. It's a matter of logic, right? Now, one of the premises might be a doctrine of faith, okay? But if you have a theological conclusion or you have a, um, you know, a, th a theological statement, it's still a theological statement to have a conclusion that is drawn from two premises, one of which is even a dogma, a doctrine of faith, but the other is a matter of reason, observation, is known naturally to us. It doesn't yield a dogma. It yields a necessary logical conclusion. But uh, if one doesn't accept that, one can accuse a person of being illogical. One can accuse someone of not being theologically incorrect. But one cannot accuse someone of being a heretic, which is, I think, what they would agree with. My, my point is simply that... See, the, this, the, the doctrinal or dogmatic state of contest, I think, are part of a larger problem in their approach. And that is, they're not listening to what their adversaries are saying. Their adversaries are saying essentially the same thing. They say, we, we condemn you, state of contest, we disagree with you and your conclusion, because we, we are starting with a, dog, a doctrine of the faith, let's say that the church is indefectible, um, and um, we are saying that uh, the church after Vatican II is, is, the, is the church, and therefore it is indefectible, and the, so what they say must be Catholic. We also have a reasoning process we go to, starting with some dogma. They are saying, for example, that you, your, your argument, you say to Vicantus, your argument leads to an absurdity and something that is contrary to the faith. That's what the anti-state of Vicantus is saying. They're saying, look, you're saying that the popes of the Novus Ordo, even going back to Pius XII uh, or John Twenty-Third, have not been true popes, that the cardinals that they've appointed have not been true cardinals, and so we actually have no real popes since Pius XII, and therefore no cardinals appointed uh, uh, by Pius XII and before him remain as true cardinals. So really, essentially, the College of Cardinals is a bunch of non-cardinals who have no right to vote in the conclave and no power to elect a pope. So you painted us into a corner. You brought us to a dead end. You're saying a necessary consequence, inevitable consequence of what you're saying, there can be no pope, that the papacy is finished. Not because the office itself is over, 
but because you've given us no way to have a pope ever again. This is what you say to Vicantus have done. This is what the anti-Sedevicantus is saying. And, you know, that question has to be answered. And it has to be answered. It's a good question. It is a good and serious question. It has to be taken seriously. It, it demands a good answer. I think there is a good answer to that question. I think people should begin to listen to what they're saying and realize why they're so concerned. They are, everybody is concerned on the one side of the aisle as the Sedevicantus are on the other side. The state of Vicantus is saying, if you're saying that this man can be, these men can be true victors of Christ on earth and popes and do what they're doing, then you've just destroyed the whole office of the papacy. You've just nullified the papacy. <clears throat> and uh, this is a concern to them. You know, like, you can't do that. You know, you know like, you're saying the church is, both, both sides are saying to each other, well, if what you're saying is true, then the church is finished. That's what you're saying. You're saying the church is finished, right? That Christ's promises failed. But they're not, it's like they're not listening to each other. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to portray myself as the voice of reason in all of this. But I, I see this on both sides, and I'm saying this is the devil's work. It's a complete waste of energy. Meanwhile, uh, Francis is, is getting away with murder. Francis is getting away with murder while they're busy, at, you know, throwing bricks at each other rather than actually working out the, the issue, the problem of Syria. You know? So um, I, I'm, I'm, I want, what, what do I want here? What, what am I hoping for? I'm hoping that uh, they'll kind of settle down, listen to, uh, you know, the points that each side is making and answer them in a logical and theologically sound way. All, all I'm asking for, essentially, is for the, the anti-Sedevicantists, or those I call the Sedevicantists, those who are actually um, aiding and abetting Francis in his destruction of the Church by insisting he, he is the Pope, he must be the Pope, you can't question it. He, he is the Pope, he has the power to do this, and uh, he can actually reconfigure the church and make all these changes, and we can't stop him. And we have to accept, you know, that he's reconfiguring the church, and we, you know, say this is the work of a true pope, vicar of Christ Center. These are the people who are enabling Francis. They're not only enabling him, as I mentioned earlier, they're emboldening him. They're the sainted Gantis, the ones who are actually denying the papacy, as the church itself has taught us. And they're enabling Francis to annihilate the papacy. That's what he's doing. He's annihilating the papacy and replacing it with something else of his own creation. Uh, what I, I would like them to do is simply realize that what we're witnessing happening now is unprecedented with Francis, okay? And uh, certainly to the degree that he's doing what he's doing, that is unprecedented. And to realize that they uh, do not have the right to anticipate the judgment of the church on Francis and cannot anathematize those who don't believe that Francis is a pope um, in their considered, you know, logical, necessary opinion. He says you necessarily come to this logical, they see this as a necessary conclusion because otherwise if they don't conclude that, they find themselves in contradiction to the teaching of the church. That's how they see it. Okay. Um, 
So I'd like the anti-Sedevicatus and Sedevicatus to at least accept the premise that it, there's a, there is a doubt. There is an objective, reasonable doubt about whether a pope can do these things, and a man who does these things can be a pope. Um, the immediate consequence of that is that it means that one does not have to accept um, what Francis is doing as the work of a supreme pontiff, even if they, they just say, well, it's questionable. You know, even if they just say that much, there's a, there's a doubt and it has to be resolved and it can't be resolved by me. It has to be resolved by the church in the course of time. Uh, but it takes away Francis's wrecking ball from him, you know, that he's using as a rattle, you know, uh, in the hand of a child almost, you know, to wreck the church. Um, but also, I, I would like the Sede Vicantis to say, well, these people are very worried, and it's not that they're just evil, irrational people. Uh, they're concerned about something, and essentially they're concerned about the same thing I am, and that is how to remain Catholic under the circumstances today. And they're asking some questions that require serious answers, not just some sarcastic dismissal. You know, as though telling them, well, you, you people are crazy or you're, you're dumb or whatever, but a serious, thoughtful, considerate answer to what really would be considered, considered answers. Um, as you know, I myself have said that uh, um, in church history, we see the church had come to impasses, even with regard to the papacy. And by the grace of God, the church found her way through. And I mentioned the Council of Constance as an example of that. And I think that in itself shows the Sede Negantis, or the anti-Sede Vicantis, that the church had come to an impasse there, and there are ways that God herself shows. And they can't simply say, well, if you deny that Francis is a, is a pope, that you're automatically a Sede Vicantis, and you're saying the church is finished and there can be no more papacy, the papacy is over. That's not so. The history of the church has shown us that, 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 that there are ways that God has provided and shows us the way through. The Holy Ghost does this. But I think that needs to be demonstrated to the Sede Negantis. As I mentioned, I consider myself and so many other people I know, when I ask them and talk to them about it, to be really Sede Cervantes, who just want to protect the papacy and protect the church against the modernists. I do not want to um, give power over the church or in the church to her modernist enemies because no one has the power to contradict what Christ himself has taught. And um, I think we, we have to recognize, I think everyone needs to simply recognize the fact that Pope or no Pope, no one has the authority to do what the modernists are doing to the church. No power to do that. No authority from Christ to do this. And uh, those who are willing to go along with it, those who are willing to go along with the modernists, are the problem. They are empowering and they are enabling the modernists to do the, the damage they're doing to the church, to souls. And uh, I, I want people, the, those who still have the faith, to come to realize that and to not put power in the hands of the modernists to destroy the church. So anyway, uh, Tom, you know, I, I think you had some uh, some statements that people actually made there, right, on their website. I do. Can you uh, 
I can pull them up. That's can fine. you pull them up? I, I think they're actually indicative of the mindset here that I'm talking about. And I think responding to them is part of the, what I'd like to consider the part of the solution. Sure. There was actually another uh, response from the website uh, where they said, if it be objected that necessary logical conclusions are not dogmas, however, so their denial does not make one a heretic. That is true. But if their denial necessarily forces one to embrace a heretical alternative, which is the case here, then the effect is the same. No, that's, that's what this individual says. But, you know, that doesn't answer the question, well, what conclusion would force one to, what does he say, contradict a, a uh, dogma? A necessary... Necessary... Uh, to embrace a heretical alternative, which is the case okay, here. Okay, he doesn't identify. He says that's the case here. He doesn't say what that is, though. Right. Okay. So what is the conclusion on the one hand, and why does it force one to embrace... Uh, a, a heretical proposition, and what is the heretical proposition? Again, speaking in generalities doesn't help. Sure. So, um, but I mean, there were, there were others who actually expressed, I, can't, I think to some extent, they expressed more or less what I was saying here. To sure. Some extent. Yeah, yeah, I'll, re I'll read one of them. Father, this, um, this commentary says, Father Jenkins has much excellent traditional Catholic commentary. All of you wonderful traditional Catholic tweeters, YouTubers, bloggers, etc. have helped me very much. I didn't even know the phrase Novus Ordo eight months ago. I wish you all would stop arguing with each other. You all do good work. And what does the next one say? Uh, let's see here. The next one says, uh, well, the website uh, responds and says, God bless you. I try very hard to stay out of intrastatevic contest disputes, but this is an issue of fundamental importance. Okay, an issue of fundamental importance. So it recognizes that this is an important question. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I, because I think this is the work of the devil to divide and conquer, right? To keep us from acknowledging what's really happening here. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think there's even another comment. There's another one uh, where the uh, the other commenter says, I follow your, your tweets daily. They're all very helpful. I'm just many steps behind you. I must admit that it is upsetting to see the Sede versus non-Sede arguments back and forth. I feel a little like a little kid watching my parents fight. Okay. I, I think that there are a lot of people who would agree with that. Uh, definitely. And, you know, I, I think there is something of value in saying that let's stop this funny have a serious theological discussion about it sure okay and try to resolve it and and realize we're we're both afraid of the same thing in the sense of uh, somehow going against the faith contradicting catholic teaching and we have to sh to show the reality you know when, when the question of the dogma of the immaculate conception was proposed during the lifetime of saint thomas aquinas in the the 1200s St. Thomas Aquinas was not in favor of the Immaculate Conception being defined as a dogma at that time, during his lifetime. And his concern was that the theology in, involved in it was not uh, clear, clearly expressed enough that people would not see a contradiction, that they would, uh, some would, would see a contradiction between what the Bible says in Adam all have sinned, right? That's what the sacred scripture says, right? Adam, all have sinned. And some would say, but the, now the Catholic Church is saying that Mary was not involved in that. Mary was exempt from that. 
How can this be? Is this not a contradiction? That's what the Protestants say, okay? Uh, but St. Thomas Aquinas understood in his brilliance, right, and in the power of grace, the illumination from divine grace, that, uh, you know, the church not only has the obligation to pronounce dogmas of faith, but to pronounce them in such a way that it is clear to the faithful how it, it harmonizes with all the other teachings of the faith and does not contradict sacred scripture or any, any of divine revelation. So um, now we have, I think, here a problem of that type where people are seeing uh, each other, you know, uh, kind of following a line of thinking that leads them to contradicting what they know about the faith, you know. Um, I think the Sede Vacantis see the Sede Negantis following their line of thinking <clears throat> to a conclusion which the Sede Vacantis says is, uh, forces them to deny a doctrine of faith. And the Sede Negantis see the Sede Vacantis doing the same thing. They're following a line of thinking that brings them to, as this man says, uh, denying a doctrine of the faith. So why can't they work this out? And as mom and dad should, right, work things out like that. The grace is there, and I think I, th I actually think there there is a very Catholic um, doctrinal and rational way to resolve the apparent divergence here. And until they do, I'm afraid this. Um, this uh, what well, internecine war is going to go on between them, and the modernists are going to continue getting away with murder. And unfortunately, in advice, advice people have the faith, and they're taking their stand on the faith and want to practice the faith. They want to be Catholic entirely, right, body and soul. They want to be Catholics and nothing but. So I think they have to uh, come to the table and, uh, you know. Maybe spend the first half hour uh, hurling insults at each other. I don't want them to do that. But once they get that out of their system, then let's have a serious discussion about uh, what's really at stake here. Mm -hmm. uh, because we have to take the power away from the church's enemies or modernists. The modernists, they're claiming to hold power from Christ to uh, attack the church and to attack souls and... Uh, and meanwhile, the state of the Contest and the state of the Gantis are going at it with each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's let's deal with this and uh, and uh, make a, a clear statement as to where the faith is to be found and how to practice in mm -hmm. the traditional faith. Well, Father, there's just one last comment here that I think uh, you you have to uh, give some remarks on this. I, I see here that someone has commented and said that I think Father Jenkins is intelligent and a respectable man. Well, that's very thoughtful. Uh, very kind of you to say that. That wasn't you. <laughs> that was not me, but, although I would agree. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind of you. Uh, but uh, I would say there are times, definitely. <laughs> and uh, thanks for your prayers. Sure. Uh, well, Father, one last thing, if we could, really, really quickly here. We have just a couple of minutes left. I received a request for you to clarify uh, one of the titles of our recent programs where uh, we had the term potpourri, the potpourri of Francis's oh, right. memory. So if, if you could clarify that, uh, that term. I, uh, I gather in my travels that people did not understand the meaning of that, right? 
<laughs> because potpourri, P-O-T-P-O-U-R-R-I, is a French expression, right? And it refers to, well, I've heard it referred to, you know, food, but also it referred to herbs and spices and so on that are put in a pot and allowed to kind of molder and release a pleasant fragrance to, one can go to the local store and buy potpourri for the fragrance of the home and so forth. But the actual uh, French words, po, P-O-T, meaning pot, and pourri means rotten, okay? Pourrir means basically um, corrupted, to corrupt, and pourri means corrupted and rotten, okay? So uh, it's, it might seem a little peculiar to people, going, you know, the rotted pot, you know, the corrupted pot giving off this fragrance, you know, or if they put it on the table and say, here's, I just made this a potpourri for dinner tonight, you know, this rot, rotted pot or this corrupted <laughs> pot. But um, in applying it, it, potpourri, well, potpourri, I mean, elated together, potpourri seemed to fit with pop regarding to Francis, because it referred to his memory. And his memory was like this rotted pot. And why, the reason why I drew that, drew that connection is because you know, he was accused of, of knowing about uh, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick's uh, abuse of seminarians over 40 years, right? And Francis would not answer that accusation. The accusation was brought by Archbishop Vigano, as you know, who just issued another statement nine months later after his original letter. Uh, and actually gave an interview from his place of hiding, which he will not divulge, even today. But um, he, in, in the interview in uh, Mexican Televisa, to a fairly confident, I think, and... Uh, an incisive Mexican journalist, a woman, who said, don't you think it's time that you answered the question, finally, of, of Vigano's accusation that you knew or did not know about, you know, McCarrick's abuse of the seminarians? And uh, then the interview goes on, and the Vatican, the Vatican news agent actually misrepresented that and edited that and had to admit that they did this. In fact, they have a history of doing that to try to clean up uh, the message that Francis made as well as, as well as it can. But he, he actually told the journalist, well, of course I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, if I had known, I would have done something, right? That doesn't sound genuine. But then when she goes on to say, well, uh, Archbishop Vigano says that you asked him about it in the Vatican shortly after March of 2013, you know, when he was chosen, right? And that uh, you specifically asked him about McCarrick. And Archbishop Vigano told you there's a file of McCarrick's misdeeds about that thick. You know, and and, uh, and told him that definitely I mean, McCarrick is, is up to no good. I mean, he's doing evil things. That you informed him. Vigano said he informed him of that personally. Uh, so, when this was, again, brought by this Mexican journalist, uh, when, when Francis was confronted with this, Francis's answer was, well, I don't remember. 
I mean, maybe he did tell me about this. I, I, don't, I don't have any recollection of it, but it's possible that he told me about it. And of course, you know, rational people everywhere just shook their head and say, this, this doesn't ring true at all. I mean, how could he not remember something like that? You know, it's impossible that someone would not remember something like that. And, and if he was told this rather shocking, horrible truth and doesn't remember it, there's something gravely wrong with his mind. So this is why I referred to his memory as this corrupted pot. And that was the title of the program. You know, Francis's, uh, the potpourri, the rotted pot of Francis's memory. But he claims, well, maybe he told me, I don't know. And what he's actually saying, what he's admitting by that, what everyone is, everyone, I think, is being reasonable, is reading into that, he's not telling the truth. And not only is he not telling the truth, he thinks that the rest of us uh, either don't care or are too stupid to figure it out, that he's not telling the truth. But it's almost like he's doing it in such a way as to, as to mock everyone. And everything, you know, at playing everybody for a fool. So, in any case, um, now Archbishop Vigano has given this interview. He's come out, he's publicly stated Francis is lying. This is a bald faced lie. So, again, the gauntlet is thrown down. Tom, this simply illustrates what I have been saying all along. I'm not going to repeat it all again, don't worry. The point is, Francis can be accused of these things. It can become absolutely clear that he's guilty of these things, but he can get away with it and no one will ever stop him from doing it. So this is exactly the kind of thing that emboldens him to think that he can destroy anything and no one will stop him. And the Sedentagantists are the ones who are, um, who are giving him that, giving him that power. Um, and we have to stop them. We have to stop that mentality and simply acknowledge the fact that Francis is at, Francis is at least a doubtful, at least that, mm-hmm. at least doubtful. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, um, I rest my case. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for being here tonight. Father, we got, got through a lot, so thank you. Well, certainly. Thank you, Tim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and also to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.